Hello, and welcome back to Fear. I'm your host, Paul Rondo, and today I have something a little different for you. I scoured the internet and wanted to find some deeply disturbing stories for you. Today I have a story about the Russian sleep experiments and the rake. Both of these stories creep me out for completely different reasons, so without further wait, this is the Russian sleep experiment. Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so the gas didn't kill them since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed-circuit cameras, so they had microphones and 5-inch thick portholes-sized windows in the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, cost to sleep on but no bedding, running water, and a toilet, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test search subjects were political prisoners deemed enemy of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised falsely that they would be freed if they submitted the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk increasingly about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a deeper aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and, and the events that led them where they were and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternatively whispering to the microphones, and one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades. At first, the researchers suspected this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber, repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about his behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, didn't react at all to it. They continued whispering to their microphones until the second captive started to scream. The non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared pages after page of their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering of the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working. Since they thought it was impossible, no sound could be coming with five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five men were still alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume at a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, We are going to open the chambers to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor you'll be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase in a calm voice respond. We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers and the military forces funded the research. Unable to provoke any more response using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flush with the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphone began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was opened, and the soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw that what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no one could rightfully call the state that they were in life. 
The food rations past day five had not been touched. There were chunks of the meat from the dead test subject's thighs and chest stuffed in the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much water was on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had a large portion of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone of their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth as the researchers initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of their wounds indicated that most, if not all, were self-inflicted. The abdominal organs below the ribcage of all four test subjects had been removed, while the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place. The skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs from the ribcage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor, fanning all around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could seem to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that they were digesting what was their own flesh they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber and alternatively begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on, lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out, another one gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off and an artery in his leg severed by one of the subjects' teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives in count, ones that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but it proved impossible. He was injected with more than ten times the human dose of morphine derivative and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arms of one of the doctors. When his heart was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he had bled out to be the point where more air in his vascular system than blood. Even after it stopped the continued scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word MORE over and over, weaker and weaker until he found finally fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility. The two with intact vocal cords continuously begged for the gas, demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative they had given him to prepare him for the surgery. He fought furiously against his restraints when the anesthesia gas was brought over to put him under. He managed to tear off the way through a four-inch wide leather strap on one wrist, even through the weight of a 200-pound soldier holding the wrist as well. It took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under, and the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table, it was found that his blood had tripled the normal levels of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn and he had broken nine bones in the struggle not to be subdued. Most of them were from the force of his muscles exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first of the group of five to start screaming. His vocal cords destroyed, he was unable to beg or object to the surgery, and he was reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head, yes, when someone suggested reluctantly they try the surgery with the anesthetic. It did not react for the entire six-hour procedure replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with the remaining of his skin. 
The surgeon presiding stated repeated that it should be medically possible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had been the patient's mouth curled in a smile several times whenever his eyes met hers. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so the patient could write this message. It was simple. Keep cutting. The other two subjects were given the same surgery, both with, without anesthetic as well. Although they had been injected with paralytic for the duration of the operation, the surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation with the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their systems in an abnormally short period of time, and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak again, asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves, why they had ripped out their own guts, and why they wanted to be given the gas again. Only one response was given. I must remain awake. All three subjects restrained were reinforced and they were placed back into the chamber awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goals of their project considered euthanizing the surviving subjects. The commanding officer, an ex-KGB, instead saw potential and wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly object but were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment it was let slip that they were going back on the gas. It was obvious that at this point all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all his might. First left, then right and left again for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired to the EEG machine of the researchers were monitoring his brain waves in surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplicably. It looked as if he was repeatedly suffering brain death. Before returning to normal, as they focused on a paper scrolling over the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut at the same moment his head hit the pillow. His brain waves immediately changed to that of deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time and his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming to be sealed in now. His brain waves showed the same flatlines as one who had just died from, the f from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber with both subjects inside, as well as three researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point blank between the eyes, and turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed, and the remaining members of the medical research team fled the room. I won't be locked in there with those things. Not with you, he screamed as the man strapped to the table. What are you? he demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily? the subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within all, begging to be freed at the moment of their deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate in silence and paralysis when you go to your nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject heart and fired. The EG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out. So nearly free. I really don't know if that one so much freaks me out at all, but it is fascinating. I've done a bunch of research on this 
online to see if this is real, and as far as I can tell, it's pretty fake. I'm pretty sure it's a creepypasta, but it's it's a hell of a story. It's it's really interesting to listen to, and I don't know. I, I couldn't stop reading it when I when I first checked it out. I've listened to other stories talking about this, and every time it just it sucks me in every single time. And this next one does a lot of the same. So on our next story, we're gonna talk about the rake. It's another internet-born story that just this one freaks me out. This one actually gets me worried about looking at the end of my bed in the middle of the night. So without further ado, guys, this is the rake. During the summer of 2003. Events in the northeastern United States involving a strange human-like creature sparked brief local media interest before an apparent blackout was enacted. Literally no information was left intact, as most online and written accounts of the creature were mysteriously destroyed. Primarily focused in rural New York State, once found in Idaho, self-proclaimed witnesses told stories of their encounters with a creature of unknown origin. Emotions ranged from extremely traumatic levels of fright and discomfort to an almost childlike sense of playfulness and curiosity. While their published versions are no longer on record, the memories remain powerful. Several of the involved parties began looking for answers that year. In early 2006, the collaboration had accumulated nearly two dozen documents dating between the 12th century and present day, spanning four continents in almost all cases. The stories were identical. I've been in contact with a member of this group and was able to get some parts from their upcoming book. A Suicide Note, 1964 As I prepare to take my life, I feel it is necessary to assuage any guilt or pain I have introduced through this act. It is not the fault of anyone other than him. For once I awoke and felt his presence, and once I awoke and saw his form, once again I awoke and heard his voice and looked into his eyes. I cannot sleep without fear of what I might next awake to experience. I cannot ever awake. Goodbye. Found in the same wooden box were two empty envelopes addressed to William and Rose, and one loose personal letter with no envelope. Dearest Linny, I had prayed for you. He spoke your name. A journal entry translated from Spanish, 1880. I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. I see his eyes when I close mine. They are hollow, black. They saw me and pierced me. His wet hand, I will not sleep. His voice. A Mariner's Log, 1691. He came to me in my sleep. From the foot of my bed, I felt a sensation. He took everything. We must return to England. We shall not return here again at the request of the rake. From a witness, 2006. Three years ago, I had just returned from a trip from Niagara Falls with my family from the 4th of July. We were all very exhausted after a long day of driving, so my husband and I put the kids to bed and called it a night. At about 4 a.m., I woke up thinking my husband had gotten up to use the bathroom. I used the moment to steal back the sheets, only to wake him in the process. I apologized and told him I thought he had got out of bed. When he turned to face me, he gasped and pulled his feet up from the end of the bed so quickly his knees almost knocked me out of the bed. He then grabbed me and said nothing. After adjusting to the dark for half a second, I was able to see what caused the strange reaction. At the foot of the bed, sitting and facing away from us, there was what appeared to be a naked man, or a large hairless dog of some sort. Its body position was disturbing and unnatural, as if it had been hit by a car or something. For some reason, 
I was not instantly frightened by this, but more concerned as to its condition. At this point, I was somewhat under the assumption that we were supposed to help him. My husband was peering over his arm and knee, tucked into the fetal position, occasionally glancing at me before returning to the creature. In a flurry of motion, the creature scrambled around the side of the bed and then crawled quickly in a flailing sort of motion right along the bed until it was less than a foot from my husband's face. The creature was completely silent for about 30 seconds, or probably closer to five, it just seemed like a while. Just looking at my husband. The creature then placed its hand on his knee and ran into a hallway, leading to the kids' room. I screamed and ran to the light switch, planning to stop him before he could hurt my children. When I got to the hallway, the light from the bedroom was enough to see it crouch and hunch over about 20 feet away. He turned around and locked directly at me, covered in blood. I flipped the switch on the wall and saw my daughter, Clara. The creature ran down the stairs while my husband and I rushed to help our daughter. She was very badly injured and spoke only once in her short life. She said, He is the rake. My husband drove his car into a lake that night while rushing our daughter to the hospital. They did not survive. Being a small town, news got around pretty quick. The police were helpful at first, and the local newspaper took a lot of interest as well. However, the story was never published, and the local television news never followed up either. For several months, my son Justin and I stayed in a hotel near my parents' house. After we decided to return from home, I began looking for answers myself. I eventually located a man in the next town over and he had a similar story. We got in contact and began talking about our experiences. He knew of two other people in New York who had seen the creature and now referred to as the rake. It took the four of us about a good solid two years of hunting on the internet and writing letters to come up with a small collection of what we believed to be accounts of the rake. None of them gave any details, history, or follow-up. One journal had an entry involving the creature in its first three pages and never mentioned it again. A ship's log explaining nothing on the encounter saying only that they were told to leave by the rake. That was the last entry in the log. There were, however, many instances where the creature visit was one of the series of visits of the same person, multiple people only mentioning being spoken to, my daughter included. This led us to wonder if the rake had visited any of us before our last encounter. I set up a digital recorder near my bed and left it running all night, every night for two weeks. I would tediously scan through the sounds of me rolling around my bed each day when I woke up. By the end of the second week, I was quite used to the occasional sound of sleep while blurring through recording at eight times the normal speed. This still took almost an hour every day. On the first day of the third week, I thought I heard something different. What I found was a shrill voice. It was the rake. I can't listen to it long enough to even begin to transcribe it. I haven't let anyone else listen to it yet. All I know is that I've heard it before, and now I believe it spoke when it was sitting in front of my husband. I don't remember hearing anything at the time, but for some reason, the voice in the recorder immediately brings me back to that moment. Thoughts that must have gone through my daughter's head made me very upset. I have not seen the rake since he ruined my life, but I know he has been in my room while I sleep. I know and I fear that one night I'll wake up to see him staring at me. Dude, <laughs> that, that story freaks me out every time you listen to it or read it. Uh, I think the first time I heard it was on the, um, what is it, the No Sleep Pod? No, it was Scared to Death. Oh my god, this story freaked me out. I was on a walk with my dog, and I, oh my god, I, I damn near shit myself. 
But that's pretty much going to do it for this week, guys. If you want to send in stories of your own, you can send it over to podcastfear at gmail.com. Also, this podcast is going to be anywhere that you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, things like that. So please leave a review if you enjoyed it. It really helps get us further up, and then we can have more people listen to the podcast. So I really appreciate you guys sticking around to the end. I hope to see you in the next one. And don't forget to face your fears.